And may, as we have just sung, God do as we look into his word. I want you to grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And let's go to the New Testament book of Acts, and Acts chapter 26. Today, we are concluding this 10-week series we've entitled Unstoppable on the church in the book of Acts, the first century church. A, a raw, authentic read here about what the church was really like. And we are in Acts chapter 26 as we conclude because what we have here is one of the greater evangelistic moments in the entire book of Acts. Not, however, in terms of conversions. Nobody comes to Christ here. But in terms of what it teaches us, what it shows us, what it demonstrates about the Apostle Paul's passion for people that don't know Christ. And there is so much here for us as we think about interfacing with the people around us who desperately need Christ but don't know Christ. So here in Acts chapter 26, it actually goes back to chapter 25, Paul is standing trial for heresy, for believing in Jesus. And he's now before the political elites, the Roman governor Festus, successor to Pilate, and the client king of Israel, uh, King Agrippa, who was really subservient to the Roman power, the, the Roman government. So you've got a, a Gentile king and a, and a, or governor and a Jewish king here. And let's follow as this story unfolds, as Luke the medical doctor records it. Let's start in verse 1 of verse 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Saul, or Paul rather motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today and to make my defense. Now the Greek word behind this English word is apologia. It's the word that we get our word apologetics from. To make my apologia against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted as a Jew with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now then, what happens in the next couple of paragraphs is really, really important because the Apostle Paul, before these two politicos and others, shares his testimony. Goes back to his childhood. Talks about his moralism, his Judaism, his commitment to being a good Jew. That's the first paragraph. Then in the next paragraph... He talks about his hostility <clears throat> to Christianity, his hatred uh, uh, of Christians. Now, I want you to note that in this situation, he begins with this testimony. It's why here at Wheaton Bible Church, we talk about the importance of a two-minute testimony. So you will have thought through what you can say about your story when you have the opportunity as you are surrounded by people that don't know Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Paul is doing. This is what I was like as a kid. This is how I felt about Christians. Now let's pick it up in verse 13 when he begins to talk about his conversion. He's still sharing his testimony. 
About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, uh, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now notice the next sentence, we'll come back to it. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, made holy by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. And now notice this last clause, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. The difference between regret and repentance is that repentance occurs over times and it's characterized by a change in life, by deeds. And that's what Paul is delineating here. Verse 21, this is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen that the Messiah would literally must suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're nuts, Paul. That's a more literal translation. You're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Now, what in the world made this guy tick? Why so passionate about evangelism? I mean, here he is, his life is hanging in the balance. This is big a court case as you could get in Israel in the first century. I want to suggest three reasons, three answers to this question that get at Paul's passion. And the first one I'm, I'm going to give you, you're going to have to hang with me because you're going to say, what in the world does that have to do with evangelism? So here we go. Number one, he was unfazed, unfazed by adversity, by pain, uh, by personal injustice, mistreatment, rejection, indifference. The apostle was just flat unfazed by it. Not because he was superhuman, but because he had confidence in the sovereignty of God. Uh, this past week, uh, 
Ron and I were with uh, some of our family, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with a family member very, very briefly. But there was no response. And it's been like that uh, for, for a long time. Get a few words out, no response. And, and frankly, honestly, it's really easy for me to get discouraged, uh, to want to give up. But what is so interesting about the Apostle Paul is he's unfazed by adversity. Look at the last four words of verse 29. He says, except for the chains. Paul was in prison. If you go back to the last verse of chapter 24, he'd been in prison for over two years now by the time we get to chapter 26. And earlier still, God had laid upon Paul's heart this dream, this vision to go to Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, to preach the gospel, to plant churches. And Paul wanted to go with everything in him. But here, Paul is still stuck in Israel, in Caesarea. Uh, think about it, this great evangelist, one of the most gifted men that's ever lived, with the, uh, this incredible tenacity and God-given, Holy Spirit-given uh, uh, ability to plant churches, lead people to Christ, he's been sidelined for two years. You could say jobless. And you look at this and you think, man, what a waste. <laughs> Uh, makes no sense. It, it, it'd be sort of like benching, um, you know, uh, some key players in the, the first line of the Chicago Blackhawks. I mean, what coach would do that for two years? But Paul's been stuck. And what's amazing here is there, there's no anger, no whining, no self-pity, no, no bitterness. Uh, Paul, as we've just read, is optimistic. He, he is upbeat, man. He's not focused on himself. He's focused on others. And it's going to get worse. In the very next chapter, Paul finally sets sail for Rome. And what does God do? Well, God directs the Apostle Paul and the 275 other men on board the ship right into a Mediterranean hurricane. And the ship is destroyed. And Paul's journey to Rome is delayed by months and months and months. So the question I want to wrestle with, and then I'll bring this together, is why? Why does God do this to his people? Gifted, capable people. Uh, I'm really asking the question, why does God allow the storms? Your storms, my storms. And let me take you back to the very beginning of the Bible to illustrate this. The, the story of Joseph, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In, in the book of Genesis. And if you know the story, you know that Joseph experienced one tragedy after another, one injustice after another. I mean, he was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, then falsely accused, and he ends up in a rat hole of an Egyptian prison. Everything in Joseph's life goes wrong. Everything. We can't even begin to imagine the loneliness God doesn't answer his prayers. Things go from bad to worse. 
but the years go by. And it's only because of these bad things we learn that Joseph finally emerges as the leader of all of Egypt next only to Pharaoh himself. And God uses Joseph to deliver thousands and thousands of people from starvation, including his family. And the point the Bible is making at the very beginning of the Bible in the story of Joseph is that if the bad things hadn't happened to Joseph, the good things wouldn't have happened as well. And this is exactly, precisely what Joseph tells his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Joseph says to him, man, you guys intended to harm me. You intended it for evil. But God, God intended it for good. Now Paul, this Paul, says essentially the same thing in his letter to the Romans, people that were being squeezed and, and threatened because of their faith. In 8.28, chapter 8 and verse 28, Paul says, and we know, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who love him. We know all things. Now, Paul is not saying everything is good. He is not saying, follow me, that every cloud has a silver lining. Because not everyone does. But he is saying from the standpoint of eternity, from the standpoint of heaven, God is working everything together to accomplish the opposite of the evil intentions of evil people, Joseph's brothers, and Satan himself. And we see this played out in the life and the death of Jesus. But today, interestingly, you never hear anyone say, oh, you know, I'm not going to believe in God because he let his son Jesus die. I mean, I don't think you've heard anybody say that. I'm not going to believe in God because uh, it didn't go so well for his son. No, uh, we don't say that because we know that in the defeat of the crucifixion, God brought the victory of salvation. But instead, today, we hear all sorts of people say, I don't believe in God because he let my marriage die, or my dream die, or my job die, or a family member die, my mother die. We don't understand how God is using our storms. So we distance ourselves from God. We begin to doubt the goodness of God. Some of us quit on God. And we become embittered. We drink too much. And we pursue other gods. Now, do you see how this issue of Paul's response to suffering relates to his passion for evangelism? I mean, you can say, hey, Rod, these are two separate issues. How in the world do they connect? God allowed the Apostle Paul to be sidelined, imprisoned, clobbered, uh, disappointed, delayed, um, defeated. Because he uses the pain, the pain to grow us, to disciple us, to make us more like Christ. And then one day God will overturn all evil. 
And out of the ashes and out of the destruction, he'll bring good. And the, hear me, the Apostle Paul knew it. He knew that. He believed at the core of his being that God had a plan for his life and the plan involved pain. Therefore, when this great evangelistic moment came, while he's a serving a prison sentence, Paul was ready. He was ready. And he's now before the two most important men in all of Israel. Because he saw his imprisonment and his pain not as a threat to his personhood, but as a platform for evangelism. And some scholars will argue that this speech we have just read is the single greatest evangelistic speech in the entire book of Acts, and there are a lot of evangelistic speeches here. Now, what's my point? My point is that the very thing that's going on in your life that you hate the most, that you think, well, man, this is going to sideline me, this is stifling me, this is so very frustrating, uh, that, that thing that pains you is what God is going to use to give you a platform, to open doors, to shape you in ways you had no idea you needed to be shaped. So that in your storm, in your storm, uh, you will speak up about Jesus and God will use you to point people to Jesus. You see, the best evangelists are often the people that have suffered the most. And it was Paul's theology that suffering that enabled him to be such an incredible evangelist because he was unfazed by adversity. Now, in the book of Acts, the spiritual vitality of the church, uh, the number of conversions, has nothing, nothing to do with political freedom. It has nothing to do with economic prosperity. It has nothing to do with the presence or absence of storms. It has everything to do with confidence in God, lest we are cannibalized by our own pain and our own agendas. And by the way, if you care deeply about the direction of our country, especially in this political cycle we're in this year, and if you're Uh, like me, over 45 and 50, and you pay a fair amount of attention to politics, I want you to think about something right here. And that is, you and I would have never, ever heard of Festus and Agrippa if it wasn't for Paul. Two thousand years later, Paul is the real story. Never, ever underestimate uh, what God is doing in the church. Never, ever underestimate the role of the Christian in culture and what God is doing behind the scenes. First century, you would have thought, oh, Agrippa, Festus, they're the story. The reality is Paul was the story. 
Just think about that as we move through this cycle. So the apostle, the apostle was passionate about evangelism uh, because he was unfazed. He was unfazed by difficulty and pain. Second, uh, the second reason Paul was Paul, the Paul was, uh, was so unstoppable, is he was clear on his purpose, unfazed by adversity, clear on his purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, when I insert myself into this story as the Apostle Paul, not that I am, but I think, okay, how would I respond? Man, I got to tell you, honestly, I would respond very differently than Paul did because I would be working really hard to declare my innocence to defend my case. And the last thing I would want to do would be to get um, Festus and Agrippa upset. But not Paul. Look at verses 28 and 29. Uh, Agrippa suddenly realizes that Paul's purpose wasn't to defend himself. Paul's purpose wasn't just to share his testimony. His purpose wasn't to share a few Bible verses and be done. Paul's purpose was to persuade, to persuade Agrippa to become a Christian. So in verse 28, Agrippa says, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian? And in the next verse, Paul says, in effect, man, I hope so. You and everybody here, I I hope so. He's trying to persuade the very people who could kill him. So Paul's purpose wasn't to play it safe. His purpose wasn't to make sure that he had everybody's approval. His purpose was persuasion. And he was absolutely clear about his purpose. Just amazing. This is why as I've thought about this, is, this is why I came to Christ. Not because of anything in me, but because of Gary. I was in college. God brought Gary into my life. Gary was a really good student. Uh, Gary ended up joining our fraternity, which was kind of dark. And um, Gary was on that college campus for one reason, and that was to lead people like me to Christ. And he led me to Christ because he spent months persuading me. Rob, talk to this guy. Rob, read this book. Let's talk about this. It's not your plans. It it is not your plans um, that focus your life. It's your purpose. Plans change. I mean, think about Paul. Uh, uh, But your purpose is is a constant. And Paul's purpose was to reach the world, and he knew his purpose. Look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I read this last week, didn't really talk about it. Here Paul gives us his purpose statement. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim or my only purpose is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, what we have in chapter 26 is an illustration of how deeply committed Paul was to that purpose. I commend this to you as a great life verse. 
some of the finest people in Wheaton Bible Church have made this their life verse. Now, what's straightforward in this chapter is that Paul's purpose was persuasion. What's a little less straightforward are the three different aspects of his persuasion. You see, Paul didn't persuade in just one way. He actually persuaded in three different ways. I want to show you those. So first of all, there's an emotional, personal aspect to Paul's persuasion because he speaks to the heart. Well, how does he do that? Well, he does that by sharing his testimony, sharing his story. He doesn't start with Bible verses. He starts with his story, his testimony. Let me tell you what I was like as a kid. Then let me tell you how I felt about Christians. Then let me tell you about Jesus appearing to me. And then let me tell you I came to Christ. Never, ever underestimate the power of your story, the power of your testimony. That's the Apostle Paul here. And you, some of you are saying, whoa, 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 Rob, hold on, time out. Uh, I don't really have a story. You see, I was raised in a Christian home and I came to Christ three minutes after I was born. <laughs> well, then make one up. <laughs> Borrow somebody else's. No, not really. But think about those moments that God has become real to you or those, uh, those crazy times when you've had a sense of divine intervention and build your testimony around that or talk about how he has used pain in your life and build your testimony around that. And that appears to be exactly what Paul is doing in verse 14. Look at, here we go back to this. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 14. He quotes Jesus, or rather Jesus says, not Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now what in the world are goads? Well, goads were sharpened sticks used to prod animals. Induce pain, the animal responds. What's very interesting here, and hang with me for a minute, some scholars suggest that what Paul is acknowledging is his deep inner turmoil when he has Jesus say this. And Paul is using this in his testimony. The deep inner turmoil he experienced prior to coming to Christ on the Damascus Road. Well, what turmoil? Well, apparently, as a self-righteous Jew, Paul thought that at least at a surface level, he could keep most of the Ten Commandments. But when he got to the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, it wrecked him. He realized he couldn't keep it. And what happened is, apparently, it produced all sorts of inner turmoil and guilt and shame. I mean, look at what he says in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin had been had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you will not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God, 
who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what this means, some scholars suggest, is that before Paul came to Christ, Paul had this spiritual superiority thing going on on the outside. But on the inside, he coveted all the time and he knew it. And he hated himself and he felt guilty. And so when Jesus says, Paul, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads Uh, Jesus is saying, that pain, that inner turmoil you were going through was for me. To show you that everything you want can only, only be found in me. So when Paul brings this up as part of his testimony, what is Paul doing? Paul is sharing part of his pre-conversion pain sharing his pain. He's speaking to the heart. There's this personal, personal, existential, uh, relational aspect. And secondly, uh, Paul, uh, there's a, Paul uses a, a rational, intellectual, factual aspect to this persuasion because he doesn't just speak to their mi- hearts, he speaks to their minds. Look at verses 24, 25, and 6. Festus interrupts, Paul, you're insane. Paul says, no, really not insane. As a matter of fact, what I'm saying is, now notice the wording, true and reasonable, true and reasonable, true and reasonable. And then he goes on and says, Agrippa knows this because this hasn't been done in a corner. In other words, Apostle Paul is saying what Jesus' ministry was, if anything, it was public. So he's citing historical, factual evidence. Agrippa, you know it. He's arguing anybody who lives in Israel and Jerusalem would have seen and heard about Jesus. They would know about the miracles. They would be able to talk to people who had seen the miracles, uh, the empty tomb, the healings, on and on. Paul is appealing to their mind. Agrippa, this wasn't done in a corner. He's saying, look at the facts. Now today... We think truth is socially constructed. So, uh, therefore, there's no such thing as absolute truth, and truth is relative. Always relative. The the problem with that is that criticism is, in fact, a truth statement. But, But even more, we can't live this way. I mean, you leave the service now, let me encourage you. To get in your car and go 120 miles an hour down North Avenue. And when you get stopped, just tell the police officer, well, the pastor said truth is relative. We don't live that way. And don't do that. (laughs) So there's a third aspect, and that is a biblical aspect. There's this biblical component to Paul's persuasion. So Paul's persuasion is multifaceted. It's very sophisticated here. He underscores what he's been saying with the Bible. In verses 22 and 23, he says that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, was predicted by Moses and the prophets centuries before it ever happened. In other words, our hearts and our heads are fallible. They can trick us. But the Bible isn't fallible. So he starts with the heart, 
uses the head, and now he grounds it in God's word. And the spiritual and, and rational arguments he uses are true because they're supported by the Bible and what the Bible says about Jesus. And he uses all three. All three. Someone once came, uh, the story goes, once came to a pastor and said, man, you give me a watertight argument for the existence of God and I'll believe in God right now. And the pastor thought for a moment and said, what if I gave you a watertight person whose life, death, and resurrection nobody could make up? and whose ministry had been prophesied for centuries. Would you believe? And the guy turned, I believe, and walked away. You see what Paul is doing here? He's speaking to people's hearts, he's speaking to people's minds, and he's using it, rooting it in God's word. Now that leaves us with one final point. Uh, Paul was unfazed by adversity, Paul's purpose was persuasion. And the question um, I want to ask to get to this final point is, well, what made this guy tick? How, how in the world could he be so uh, bold? I, I, I mean, think about it. If um, I was invited to the White House for dinner tonight, or you were invited out for dinner with your favorite actor, say, Leonardo DiCaprio, Do you think we'd talk like this at dinner, White House? I don't think so. I think we'd back way off. And I say that because what's going on here seems impossible to us. So what was key for Paul? Well, look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul talks about four fruits of the gospel, light, power, forgiveness, and place. And the answer to Paul's boldness was his security. He was secure in his forgiveness and his place. Let me talk about place. The word here means home family. Paul was secure, not just in being forgiven, but being adopted by God into God's heavenly family, being completely and totally accepted and loved, not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done. So Jesus said, I will go and prepare a place for you, talking about our heavenly home. And Paul knew at the core of his being that he belonged to God, that he was loved by God, and he had a place with God because he knew that Jesus had surrendered his place in heaven for him. And that Jesus became a man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, death on the cross. Now, do you know that? Do you know in here that you are completely and totally forgiven and completely and totally accepted and you have a place in God's heart 
and that will be forever. So because of Paul's regard for the king of the universe and all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, uh, Paul <laughs> didn't need, he didn't need the regard of Festus or Agrippa. He was free. He didn't need to impress. He didn't need to, to, to prove because he knew he had this place in the, in the heart of God and that knowledge made him fearless. It made him bold. And if you're here today and you haven't come to Jesus Christ or you, you've been kind of looking from the outside in, you're, you're wondering, man, I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus. He died for you. that he might rescue you and transform you from the inside out. If you've never done so, come to Jesus. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at what you have done for us in your son. And I think about this passage and I think about where we are in 2016 and I ask God that by your spirit you would give us the grace to so see the wonder of the love of Jesus in surrendering his place that we share the boldness of Paul. For Jesus' sake, amen. Man, thank you, Rob. Let's stand together and let's sing this anthem for us together that through us God can do all things. We see brokenness, you see stronger than before. We see fallenness. You see prodigals restored, we see hopelessness, you see the stone rolled away.